it's starting to look like I'm just not good enough. I'm not rich enough for Republicans to write legislation for me, but I'm not poor enough for Democrats to do it either. I'm going to be stuck with the old laws, the ones we've had since the first day of the first Congress, like that regulation establishing lighthouses, the tariff of 1789, or the Third Amendment, which prevents the government from quartering troops in my house. I'm not a lawyer, but here's some free legal advice. When your son comes home on leave from the army and eats all your food and uses up all the hot water, it is not a Third Amendment violation. Whatever you do, do not file an amicus brief about it with the Supreme Court. Trust me on this. We'll figure out what the dogs and I are really good for on this episode of I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News. I'm not sick enough for my health insurance company to pay all my medical bills, or for the government to do it either. I'm not healthy enough to stop paying my insurance premiums and roll the dice against the day that I might have a massive heart attack from doing all this intemperate ranting, or from mowing the lawn. I'm not young enough to get a free education, or old enough to get special protection from abuse or fraud. My business doesn't make enough money to get tax abatements, or get me invited to play golf with my congressman. It doesn't lose enough money to get zero-interest government loans or straight-up bailout cash, as if Uncle Sam really was my mother's brother. I don't belong to any group that has a well-funded lobbying apparatus hard at work in Washington or my state capitol, handing out campaign donation checks stapled to the rough drafts of bills they'd really like to see turned into law. Which, sooner or later, in pretty much their original form, mostly unread by the lawmakers who cash those checks, get turned into law. I'm not part of any organization that has famous media figures advocating for its goals or interests on a TV show, website, or podcast, except this one, and the only members of this organization are me and the dogs. My outrage at whatever bad thing happened to me today isn't going to be picked up and amplified by anyone by the time I turn the TV on after the sun goes down. So what am I good for? I'm good enough to pay for my health insurance and the taxes that finance the health care of people who can't afford large premiums. I subsidize the massive write-offs hospitals are taking because they can't get paid on time by the same people I send monthly payments to, and the bankruptcies of patients who had no choice after having bypass surgery or cancer treatment or a life-threatening chronic medical condition that forces them to choose between their groceries and their prescriptions every month. I pay for car insurance and homeowner's insurance with those few extra add-ons that cover me in case I encounter a claim situation with someone who doesn't have either. I put money in a retirement fund that I can't touch no matter what roller coaster the stock market is riding, but I still pay into Social Security with every paycheck. So does my employer. I pay sales taxes and state taxes and federal taxes and gas taxes and register my car and renew my driver's license for a fee. I pay county taxes to fund the schools and city taxes to pay for the fire department. I pay a tax so I can hunt or fish, and I pay to drive on the roads that my grandma's tax money paid to have built in the first place. I spend my after-tax money in the consumer marketplace to prop up the stock price of all those big businesses that get tax abatements and free bailouts. I'm good enough to fund bridge building and battleships and pay for my congressman to get on TV and tell me that his primary mission in the nation's capital is to stop the other side from doing whatever it is they're doing today 
and whatever it is they're planning to do tomorrow. He wants me to know, on my dime, that he is standing firmly in the way of the opposing party's agenda, whatever it is. So I really should consider sending even more money to support his re-election. But if I send him a letter along with $10, letting him know that instead of resolutely holding the line against the other side's legislative priorities, like the ancient Theodosian walls of Constantinople, I'd like him to sponsor a sinking fund to pay down the national debt, or a constitutional amendment limiting congressmen to 12 years in office, I get no reply. He doesn't even comment on the irony of me sending him a $10 bill, because it was Alexander Hamilton himself who said that the government of the United States should assume no financial burden without a specific revenue source to pay for it. In full. He didn't think our representatives should be in office for life, either. My congressman keeps my 10 bucks and doesn't answer. I do get a vote, but by the time I show up at my polling place, I only get to choose between a candidate who supports things like not paying down the national debt and one who doesn't want the job he's running for to end after only a decade or so. I can pull the lever for a woman who thinks women are little more than the personal property of men, or a man who thinks we should spend trillions of dollars to keep the polar ice caps intact. There will always be candidates on the ballot waiting for their chance to fight for my right to own a machine gun or keep sugary drinks out of my kid's school. If I want open borders or closed borders or widespread abortions or none at all, or free college money or expensive and pointless health insurance, there will be someone on my ballot to say they'll maybe help me out with that. If I hate China or France or Russia or Belgium, I've got no shortage of electoral choices. If I want to keep the United Nations in business or shut it down, all I have to do is pick someone on Election Day who will pretend they're going to take care of it for me. If I love coal-fired power grids or towering windmills, if I want a gas-guzzling pickup truck or a tiny car fueled by a compact hydrogen bomb, someone will show up during campaign season who will promise to get me those things. You know, eventually. I don't mean to trivialize any of these issues. Melting polar ice caps can't really be a good thing. Too many babies are being aborted. I like secure borders and all, under the maxim that good fences make good neighbors. I would love to own a machine gun, even though no one who's ever seen me use a power drill thinks I should, and sugar does turn kids into hyperactive crazy people. Belgium, and I can't stress this enough, must be stopped. Their chocolate and waffles are making me fat. Okay, I may have just trivialized the whole Belgium issue. Still, my healthcare coverage is in no way equipped to deal with the physiological fallout of consuming too many of Belgium's most famous exports. We can put NATO headquarters somewhere else. But when you make a list of the things that end nations and topple empires, politicians for sale to anyone with enough money, lawmakers beholden to someone other than the constituencies they are elected to serve, an empty treasury, government by Bible or government by business, no one with any chance of getting elected is dealing with them or has any intention of doing so. Political parties, and everyone with a vested interest in keeping America stuck in the proverbial ditch its proverbial car has been in for decades, are the ones who tell us what our elections are really about. Like magic, they produce candidates who are going to fight hard to make it look like they are dealing with whatever they just told us our national priorities are. When the election is over, somehow, all that resolute intent goes nowhere and accomplishes nothing. Not only are they not tackling things like the national debt and the healthcare system, but they're not even making progress with all the issues they just told us were essential to the salvation of the country. 
Check back in two years or four and we'll try again. In the meantime, here's your tax bill. This episode is brought to you by the Council of Nicaea. In the 4th century AD, Roman Emperor Constantine the Great had a problem with Christians, like his mom, but of course excluding his mom. This new religion had a massive appeal and many converts, and he had discovered that a cohesive religion was a great way for a political leader to assert control over his citizens, especially in the middle of a war. But Christianity was far from cohesive. It seemed like every region of the empire had its own flavor of worship. Was Jesus divine or fully human? Was the book of Daniel part of biblical canon or wasn't it? Is church on Saturday, Sunday, hell, can I even go on Monday if I really want to? Plus, how much wine is too much wine? A question we all have trouble with at times. His predecessors had gotten tired of all the confusion and just went down the standard persecution route. Christians suffered. Their religion was outlawed altogether, which rather ironically was the one thing that seemed to get them all on the same side for a while. So Constantine, in his greatness, hit upon a brilliant, if not self-serving, idea. He made Christianity legal. I guess he figured if Christians were allowed to worship however they wanted, they would spend more time fighting each other instead of potentially uniting against him. While they were distracted, he would be able to assert control and use the widespread appeal of their religion to turn Christianity into an agent of the state. The early Christians enjoyed a few years of freewheeling bloodbaths where priests of each sect excommunicated rival congregations. It was quite a show, riots and fires and killings and backstabbing, and pretty much everybody thought that just about everyone else was going to hell. When Constantine decided they were weak or distracted enough, he summoned a council of all the bishops of the empire, even paying for their transportation hotel rooms, maybe a snack or two, to come hammer out the rules and details of Christianity once and for all. Of course, his soldiers were present for the whole retreat. The Council of Nicaea defined orthodoxy, how Christians would worship, and what their Bible would say. It codified the rules about drinking and carousing. It basically standardized what gets one into heaven, and by default, how one makes sure they never get there. The other cool thing that it did was place the emperor at the head of the Christian church. How fortunate for him. Divide, Constantine said, and conquer, and it worked like a charm. Well, now I'm just bringing you down. It sure sounds like most of us have no real say in the governing of the country, despite all that representation we were promised by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. It feels like our job is to fund the government but stay out of the decision-making, which James Madison will tell you is actually the intent of Republican-style democracy. But he had much different representatives in mind when he said it. I wish we could put all the blame for it on the political parties, or the rich folks who give them money in exchange for laws, or the institutional coma Congress can't manage to wake itself up from. I wish we could blame the media, who keeps giving most of their airtime to the extreme entertaining fringes of our political spectrum. But we can't. All politicians are cowards. They are all afraid of something. Not getting that committee assignment they wanted, not being invited to play golf with the President or Speaker of the House, becoming irrelevant, losing their seat, and having to live the day-to-day -day lives of the citizens they claim to serve. If you look back over the last few election cycles, you can see how easy it is to play upon their fear and turn them into pliable tools. Both Barack Obama and Donald Trump were able to take over their respective parties and turn their elected members into, with a few exceptions, drones who voted the way they wanted and parroted their talking points like ventriloquist dummies. When a political leader has a loyal and committed following, 
who will turn out reliably to vote in every election. You do what they want, or you might find yourself paying for your health coverage out of your own pocket and playing golf with Phil from the hardware store instead of the Vice President of the United States. It was no different a century ago when Teddy Roosevelt rode his bully pulpit into the congressional districts of his political opponents and ranted to huge crowds about how Senator Useless and Congressman Good-for-Nothing were ruining the country and should be turned out of office. Harry Truman did it in his electoral comeback tour of 1948. Politicians can talk tough on TV when they're running for something, but once they get to the swamp in the nation's capital, they start looking for someone to tell them what to do. And someone always does. In most cases, it's not anyone who had to run for office and get elected to things. It's not the voters in their districts. America's electorate, the ones who vote, the ones who do the work and pay the taxes, aren't the ones determining the agenda. Because the same cowards we propel into office and the political machines behind them have figured out a surefire way to keep us from doing that. They turn us against each other. Immigration, guns, abortion, climate change, tax breaks, tax hikes, gas prices, food prices, bridges, battleships, education, jobs. China and France and Russia and Belgium. Okay, maybe not Belgium. That might just be me. If they can get half the country to unite against the other half, they guarantee one thing, that the entire country won't come together and start telling them what to do. And the people who are supposed to be running things and solving problems? They spend their official lives in fear. How are they supposed to do anything meaningful when they're afraid all the time? Politicians love a divided population. It's a huge time saver. Instead of having to convince the biggest number of voters about the biggest issues, they just have to persuade 51%. Which, if you've noticed, our elections have been 51 to 49 for years now. It's like the 4th century Roman Empire all over again. Why waste time talking about the national debt or the cost of health care or the complexity of tax policy when you can rant about electric cars or gun rights and get your 51%? Why dig into the biggest challenges facing the country when the key to keeping your seat is to harp on the smallest ones? Whose fault is it really? Ours. We need to start having national conversations and priorities instead of political ones. If we want the big problems solved, we need to quit spending all our time on the little ones. We can tell the people running for office what the election is about and what we expect them to do once they win. We have to tell them what we want, and then vote that way. Don't just take my word for it. It's time for you to weigh in. I'd love to hear what you think our election should be about, or your take on the Roman Empire of the 4th century. Post something on the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News Facebook page, even if it's a picture of your own long-suffering pets. If you think the conquest of Belgium is neither inevitable nor necessary, you can Twitter to at notalloweddpod. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to not allowed to watch the news. Support comes from the Open Highway Podcast. Ever had a conversation about Bigfoot, UFOs, politics, Martian colonies, or whatever it is that Vladimir Putin is thinking? Like meeting a fellow traveler at a roadside diner, the conversations on the open highway are interesting and thought-provoking, and the host is a guy who knows a little bit about everything, which always gets him into trouble. 
check out podcast.notalloweditowatchthenews.com for the open highway and how to get started on your next road trip.